0: He offered me a gift that I will never forget, and I and um, I'm, whew, I always get emotional when I tell this. I apologize, but he was unlike my husband, who was in a coma and passed away without being able to speak. Joe was still conscious, and I was by his side as were the other two people in the room. And he looked at me and said, "It's time for me to go, Lisa," and. I said, I know Joe, it's okay, I love you, I'm here. And he said, no, Lisa, you don't understand, it's time for me to go. And I said, I know Joe, it's okay, I love you, and I'm going to be right here. And he passed away maybe within 20 seconds. And the gift that he gave me and the way it changed sort of my trajectory is that I hadn't realized He was able to say to me what my husband couldn't say to me, and he was able to hear me say what my husband couldn't hear me say. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed,
1: a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Lisa Kehopper, who is the founder of Reimagining Grief. Welcome, Lisa. Thank
0: you so much for having me on the show today.
1: Thanks for being here. So Lisa, you would call yourself a grief specialist. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that title a lot lately. I think grief advocate is a place I'm landing to or grief guide. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't think I'm an expert, though I have a lot of lived and um, trained experience. So maybe grief advocate?
1: Yeah. And I also like that explanation of grief guide because I think that that might play a lot into what many people associate grief with, which is not having a guide. I mean, I think one of the tenets of your work is that grief isn't really discussed enough and people don't know how to
0: navigate it. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a journey that we're on in many ways um, for the rest of our lives. Some people don't agree with that philosophy, but I think we're always integrating our experiences and making meaning. And so it's a long journey and we don't talk about it often in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to um, understand that we don't know our way and that we can lean on people along the way as guides. And that's what I try to do in my writing, with my podcast, um, with my one-on-one consultations that I do with individuals and even the guidance I provide companies. So.
1: Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that Lots of people who haven't experienced it would call anything they've gone through
0: grief by its name. What is grief? I know, isn't that the million dollar question? Yeah, um, (laughs) so I think about grief as really, you're right, I think it's not just you, I think for many of us growing up, at least in U.S. culture, and I want to just put into context a lot of the writing and the thinking that I do, of course, is based from my world vantage point as a white woman in US culture. So I just kind of want to orient myself there. But I think we, you don't know about grief and many of us don't know about grief because in our culture, we don't talk about grief. um, We don't talk about emotions in general, especially hard emotions. The only emotion we talk about is happy. Mm. So I like to use a metaphor to describe grief, and hopefully this will resonate for you and for your listeners. So the metaphor I use for grief is that our lives are basically built by stories. Every event in our life is an event. It doesn't have meaning. And we we are meaning-making creatures. And we tell stories of events over the course of our lives. And that shapes who we are, our sense of the world, our sense of ourselves. And death loss, for an example, or a major shift like we're having, experiencing globally first with the pandemic. And now when we think about the work that we're all doing around race in mm-hmm. this country, um, trying to you know, dismantle the white supremacist system in this country, all of those major shifts are akin to the tearing of the manuscript of our lives. And our manuscript is gutted and shredded and then handed back to us with no instructions on how to rewrite or live our lives. And so grief is the sort of emotional, very appropriate emotional response to that incredible loss. It's why we often think in grief about experiences and emotions and reactions like disorientation, brain fog, sadness, anger, confusion, you know, because we had a story that we lived by and this loss basically is just a shredding of our story. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the metaphor I like to use because I think it helps validate for people and name for people why they feel such mixed sense of emotions and experiences and to normalize it and to not pathologize it. Of course, if your manuscript was ripped to shreds, how would you even know how to you know, get up in the morning, where to go, what to think, how to feel? How to proceed with your life. How to proceed with your life because the truth is you're not gonna go backwards. I mean, the truth is we're always evolving. Things are always changing. Certainty is an illusion to begin with. But when you have a death loss or again, as I said, some of the major world events that are happening right now, it's an illumination that certainty isn't there and that our story isn't a fixed story.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so that we have to, the work of grief and grieving is really the editing and rewriting and adapting of our story. And so in many ways, we're doing that throughout our lives and we're having multiple grief events throughout our lives. I think the other thing to maybe just At this moment, continue to talk about it. But I think one thing to name is we often confuse grief and mourning. Mm. And in in many ways, I think mourning is sort of the public display of what we feel on the inside. So, you, everybody's grief journey is unique. And we sometimes make assumptions that we see people grieving in similar ways, but you don't necessarily see what someone's grief is because that is sort of the internal experience Mm -hmm. of somebody's loss. And mourning is often the sort of performative rituals, et cetera, or the ways in which people are comfortable or not expressing their grief emotions on the inside. So...
1: Is it kind of like the difference between a marriage and a wedding?
0: uh, Yeah, maybe a little (laughs) bit. That's an interesting analogy, right? Yeah, we plan our wedding as an event. And then the marriage is the work that we do sort of ongoing. And I would say mourning sometimes sort of in that public display we see more limited than the actual lived emotions of grief and the work that I I call it sort of the work of grief that we all do as we navigate our way.
1: Right. But I think what you're saying is, and, and at least in my own observation, grief is not something that a lot of us know how to navigate. And there aren't a lot of, I think when you actually address it, people can find themselves surrounded by people who are uncomfortable with it.
0: Absolutely. A hundred percent. So back to sort of my, I I think about things a lot in our cultural context as a trained social worker and narrative therapist, culture and how we learn things is sort of really at the core of how I think about things. So yeah, I think even when those of us who go through a grief experience and start to talk about it, it makes everybody uncomfortable because in our culture, we don't talk about it, right? We've never talked about it, probably in your family of origin. You know, maybe if someone passed away, maybe mm-hmm. for instance, you grew up in a family where everybody said, don't cry, don't show your emotions, move on. We don't talk about them anymore, etc. And generally, culturally, we have other ways in which we don't really name or show up and do grief. We are productivity obsessed in this country. So we don't really want to accept the fact that grief makes us have brain fog for a long time and are disoriented. We have a happiness obsession in this country, And we sort of think that if you're not happy, you're just doing something wrong and you need to follow these top five tips Mm. to fill in the blank, (laughs) right? So there's all these cultural ways in which other cultural myth or other cultural problematic thinking are things like we don't talk about emotions in the workplace or men don't cry or, I mean, I could go down a list of sort of all of these sort of cultural assumptions that we have that seep into our inability to hold space for ourselves and somebody else when they're in pain. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to hold space for pain in this country.
1: It seems really compartmentalized. It seems like you're supposed to pretty much segment off these different parts of yourself.
0: Exactly. As if you don't show up fully human at work or you don't show up fully human as a wife and a mother and a friend mm-hmm. or in you know different spaces. And so to your point, I think when we, those of us who are grieving have, and that's sort of how I got started in this work is like, I realized even the most well-intentioned people around me didn't know how to show up and sort of hold space for me. They jumped into the sort of number one problematic thinking in this country, which is grief is something that needs to be fixed and that everything that needs to be fixed, that there's a solution for everything that's Mm -hmm. broken. And so we don't know how to just hold space. Mm -hmm. And so we often, you know, people do this and we live in a very expert culture. So We show up in pain and instead of sort of sitting with that, we often jump into, and I'll throw myself under the bus on this because I've made this mistake too in my life, Mm. is we jump into fix-it mode. Mm -hmm. You know, we jump into, how can I make you feel better? Or you don't really feel that way, or it's going to get better in time, or we start saying all the platitudes that I want to pull my hair out, (laughs) right? And the truth is, grief isn't a problem that needs fixing. It needs feeling, Mm. And if we can drop our fix-it mentality and show up for someone else in their grief by just holding space, that just means listening, then that is the best help that we can provide to that person because it's the time and the space and the reflection that that person needs to feel supported as they rewrite, adapt, edit, and rebuild the story of their lives.
1: I really love and appreciate that story analogy because I think you're right. If everyone imagines that someone's going to get back to wherever they were before they encountered the loss, then they're not going to be able to help that person. But if they can understand that that person's story has been irrevocably rewritten and changed, then that is a a very good starting place.
0: Absolutely. I think we have to sort of just be there as in support as that person continues to rewrite and rebuild our story. And the one thing I want to sort of name there is this misconception that the work of grief has some final stage or end and that we quote unquote get back to who we were. Mm. And I think whether we're talking about grief or not any spiritual emotional work quote unquote that we do in our life is always sort of forward momentum. So while we will take pieces and parts of us forward always In our lives, in grief, just like any other spiritual work, we're never going to go back to being the person that we were. That isn't our goal. Mm. Our goal is to sort of integrate the experiences of our lives into our story as it's unfolding and find places of softness and kindness and compassion for ourselves to help be able to sort of welcome back in joy or amazement or delight or some of the other things that allow us to sort of appreciate and fully live on this journey that we're on. So Mm -hmm. I think the misnomer for so many, or the mis, I don't know, education or the misguided Mm -hmm. thinking that we have is that the goal is to get back. And I think we do that to ourselves as much as other people do it to us as well. Mm -hmm. So all of this sort of grief myths and these problematic thinking statements that we have about grief, it's not just that other people are saying it to us and that causes us, the griever, unnecessary harm. Mm -hmm. I think we, the griever, do a lot of that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we've sort of filtered down those same things, those sort of same ways of thinking. And so I often have my own experience and supporting other people along their grief journey. They're often thinking like, I should be over it. I should not feel this bad. I just want to get back to the me that I was before,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right? I shouldn't be emotional. I shouldn't be angry. We do a lot of shoulding all over ourselves. Yes. And that's because we've sort of, you know, all of that cultural thinking has sort of trickled down into our own way. And then so we end up causing unnecessary harm to ourselves. And so often the work that I do in my writing through Reimagining Grief, but also in my one on one grief sessions that I do with people is to just help illuminate where the shoulds are coming up for them and just invite them to think maybe that that should is not serving them, Mm -hmm. that it's, it's kind of getting in the way of their grief work. Because I think that's sort of our barrier often.
1: Would you say that the more I learn about the process of grief and grieving, the more I wonder if there are people who have been affected by grief and people who haven't. And that is a really clear divide that you can almost divide
0: people up into those who have experienced grief and those who haven't. It's interesting. That's an interesting way of thinking because one of the things that I have been thinking about lately is well, there's a couple of things. One is, I do think everybody is impacted by a loss differently. And then each person's new loss, they may process very differently than their old. So while you may be able to divide the world into people who have had death losses, mm-hmm. you know, significant relationship death losses, let's say, and people who haven't, mm-hmm. and then you can definitely see the ways in which they see the world are very differently as a result. I would actually argue that by the time you're an adult, you've experienced you know lots of different kinds of losses, and you may have had the opportunity to grieve, but because we didn't name it loss, we weren't grieving mm-hmm. so often in my years as a therapist and doing case management work as a social worker, a lot of the uh, pain that I saw in people presenting with things that would have been diagnosed with like depression or anxiety or eating disorders, not that there aren't you know sort of medically based you know, criteria for those diagnoses. But for many of them, it was really not being able to name and acknowledge the loss that they had faced and really doing the work of grief in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, for instance, I worked in foster care and adoption, which of course is sort of really surrounded by grief and loss, Mm -hmm. the impact of grief and loss. So I do think, yes, there are people who, you know, sort of haven't had a traumatic, not everybody has lost their husband and a good friend or, you know, which was the experience that I've had with close death losses. But everybody's had some kind of loss, whether you're talking about divorce, abandonment issues, mm-hmm. uh, loss in things like someone dying from Alzheimer's. I think there's a whole kind of loss um, Pauline Boss calls ambiguous loss hmm. where someone is physically present, but, you know, sort of like mentally different. Yeah. So I think it's important for us to think about the ways in which, and that's part of the conversations I'm trying to have more and more is what does constitute loss? How does that affect us each as individuals? And how does attending to it as loss change the way we may show up for ourselves differently so that we can do some integrating, we can do some healing work, and so we can show up more compassionately for other people in their grief and loss? Mm -hmm.
1: Were you interested in this area before your own personal experience, before your own grief walk? Do you think that you would have found yourself here had you not
0: experienced it personally? You know, I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to know. Of course, we never know when we think about rewriting our stories, you know, to use this metaphor, but I don't think so. I think, you know, I would have continued. I was the clinical director of a family services at the time that my husband died. I was quite happy with that work. I was creating lots of programs in the community I was living in at the time. So I don't know that until I experienced, and and honestly, I experienced the death loss of my husband in 2011, but in 2010, he began behaving very differently. And we spent a year where he was physically in our home and in our lives, but he was not the Eric that I knew and fell in love with and was continually misdiagnosed. So we didn't know what was wrong.
1: Did he know that he was different or did you just know he was different?
0: Um, Everybody in his life, including him, knew he was different. But what was happening was he didn't really, quote unquote, care that he was different. He sort of was thinking he was finding this truth about himself. But the truth was he had a grapefruit sized brain tumor that had shifted his brain stem. Mm-hmm. and they weren't clear how he was even able to walk around when they finally found the diagnosis. But the reason I bring that piece of the story up is that when I look back as my daughter and I, she was seven at the time that my husband died, were experiencing ambiguous loss because while the man we knew and loved was standing in our home, the man we knew and loved was not standing in our home. And that happens for so many, if you get my meaning, and that happens for so many people, yes, and then his death loss, which I was in his hospital bed, waiting you know there with him for the last nine hours of his life until he passed in my arms, his death loss began a new loss and grief, and it was a new journey to be on, so yes. I think having experienced kind of that double experience of loss with Eric was definitely um A changing moment in my life. And it really sparked a new curiosity for me about understanding grief and loss and how I can show up for myself, for my daughter, and for others in the world. And I took some detours along the way. I co founded a nonprofit program that helped other cancer patients and did some other work. But I think compounding that with the loss of my friend, Joe, whose side I was by when he passed away. And some other can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, my friend Joe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so um that was a really so I, being with my husband when he passed, which I've talked about before publicly, was the most excruciating and most beautiful, you know sort of moment of my life. And in the year or two, a few years after that, our friend Joe, who was a family friend who knew my husband Eric and who had traveled with my extended family on trips was kind of my lifeline because he was up in the middle of the night. He didn't judge me for being sad. Mm. He didn't try to fix my pain. He was just, you know, he he really was a great grief support. And he was living here in Austin for a couple of reasons. We, my brother and I had relocated him here because he was coming to the final stages of his muscular dystrophy and having Mm -hmm. some issues. And so we were, you know, attending to him and being with him just as much as he was nourishing us and his way of offering grief support to me was sort of life-changing and it really is the way I think about showing up as a grief guide for everybody else. And so when I happened to be at the hospital along with my brother and another friend with Joe, he offered me a gift that I will never forget and I and um I always get emotional when I tell this, I apologize, but he was unlike my husband who was in a coma and passed away without being able to speak. Joe was still conscious and I was by his side as were the other two people in the room. And he looked at me and said, it's time for me to go, Lisa. And I said, I know, Joe, it's okay. I love you. I'm here. And he said, no, Lisa, you don't understand. It's time for me to go. And I said, I know, Joe, it's okay. I love you and I'm going to be right here. And he passed away maybe within 20 seconds. And the gift that he gave me and the way it changed sort of my trajectory is that I hadn't realized he was able to say to me what my husband couldn't say to me. And he was able to hear me say what my husband couldn't hear me say in those final Mm -hmm. moments. And it was so transforming, but also the fact that I had that experience and it was so beautiful. And then when I tried to talk about it with people, people became uncomfortable about the conversation about talking about being with somebody when they die to talking about grief and loss. The minute I became emotional, people wanted to jump in and fix my pain. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know the compounding experiences of losing Eric and then losing Joe really shaped how I was seeing all of a sudden—it's like I said earlier. Maybe I lift the veil of how poorly we hold space for one another in our pain, which means we are horrible at holding space for ourselves mm. and and offering ourselves loving compassion and kindness in our pain. And that really, I think, was a pivotal point in my journey to be here doing what I'm doing as a grief and empathy advocate.
1: Yeah. Would you say that the way that we treat others? in their grief is the way we might be treating ourselves and vice versa.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a really critical thing to think about because we often want to show up and fix other people and make them better, right? Mm-hmm. And when we do that, what we're really saying to ourselves when we face pain is, "Hey self, get it together. Don't linger here. Pain is bad." Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't feel sad, you shouldn't feel angry, you shouldn't feel resentful, you shouldn't feel confused. When you're uncomfortable with it for somebody else, you're uncomfortable with it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And when we don't allow ourselves to feel the feelings, then we aren't actually doing our own healing work. And so then that just ricochets and reflected in how we show up for others. So I often say to people who are wanting to show up for their friends or family members in grief, the first thing you have to do is do your own grief work. What are your grief beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. What do you believe about grief? What is your comfort About finding compassion and kindness Mm -hmm. for the really messy, uncomfortable emotions of grief. And until you start to unpack your own experience with it and your own beliefs, you're going to be sort of bringing those contaminated actions and thinking to those you love. And that's, of course, the last thing we want to do. We want to show up, you know, sort of with empathy and love and kindness to others. But if we're not able to do that for ourselves, then we can't expect us to be able to do that for others. That makes sense. Yeah. This doesn't mean to dismiss the value of friends and family as support in our lives. And just because you haven't gone through the exact loss experience of somebody else does not mean, this is not what I'm saying, that you can't show up for them. Uh, My best grief advice is show up, shut up, listen, and keep showing up. Um, You can absolutely show up. And it's why I often think that using grief support, whether it's a you know, grief support group at your local services in your local community, whether it's hiring a grief guide like myself or so many others who are doing this work so beautifully in this country is really important because I use, I'm a scuba diver. I've been a scuba diver since I was 12, 13. I actually learned my life motto, scuba diving (laughs) at that time. But I lost your life motto. My life motto is dive in, breathe deep and buddy breathe when necessary. (laughs) I actually wrote a piece about that for Thrive Global Mm. last year, and and I'd love for folks to read Mm -hmm. that. But the reason I use the scuba diving analogy in this instance is our friends and family love and care about us so much. And when they see us in pain, they sort of swim over and do everything they can to keep us from sinking underwater, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they're throwing buoys, they're throwing lifelines, they're yelling at us, tugging at us, you know, (laughs) whatever the metaphor is, right? To keep us afloat above water. And a grief guide or a, a wellness practitioner, a mental health practitioner, is job it is is to get on their scuba gear and come underwater and sit with you for a while and buddy breathe until you're ready to come up to the surface again. Mm. And while our friends and family want to be able to do that, it's very rare for them to be able to do that because, again, we're not practiced, or if you want to use the scuba metaphor we're not certified in how to sit underwater, (laughs) Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so we keep trying to buoy people back up.
1: Mm -hmm,
0: And there is a time and space for buoying, but especially in the early phases and the early stages or the early time of grief, I like to call it not stages, we are underwater and we don't need to be dragged up and told we shouldn't be underwater. We need someone to come underwater with us and buddy breathe and help us start to make meaning and find orientation to the after. Mm -hmm. You know, there's sort of the before and the after in our lives.
1: I'm intrigued by you not wanting to call them stages. I have my own suspicions about why that might be. But can you explain why you prefer not to talk about grief and stages?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) I just actually wrote an entire article about this. So um, Mm -hmm. let me try to think about how I can sort of unpack it. I don't want it to diminish. There's lots of history, of course, in the stage theory. Many people will know about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who, by the way, wrote the stage theory not about people grieving somebody else's death. The theory was actually written, the stage's theory was actually written originally to talk about how people came to terms with their own impending death. Mm-hmm. And it was actually adapted to um, on grief and grieving along with David Kessler to be about the grief. Mm-hmm. And David Kessler has recently added sort of a sixth stage of, in that theory. I think it can have some use-ish in that we think about it helps illuminate some of the common reactions or experiences we have in loss. The reason I generally dismiss it and have problems with it is that we have culturally adapted it to our own particular weird U.S. culture way of thinking, (laughs) which is everything has a fix. And if you just (laughs) check stage, okay, stage one, check stage two, you know, we think of everything as very linear and as every checking off. And so I think the stages way of thinking has, though know, that wasn't necessarily their intention, has been co opted. And so it again goes back to what I talked about earlier, which is it causes us to show up with misguided thinking to support other people. Like, how come you haven't moved from <laughs> denial to anger? But we also do that to ourselves. How come I'm back here at this quote unquote stage again? I should be, again, should quote unquote. moving forward. right. So that's why I sort of have that problematic thinking with stages. I think of time and I think of, again, if you think about the metaphor of rewriting your script, certainly two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, your script is going to be maybe more fully rewritten, more adapted. You're going to be living a life. So yes, I would say the likelihood of you experiencing the same yourself and the world eight years from now as you do now Of course not. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, we are moving in a direction, but I think it's better to think about it more about kind of a journey or um, a rewriting of your script, or some people use the language of integration, sort of integrating the experience into how you are making meaning of the world. Mm -hmm. And stages just cause us, the stage assumptions, I think really the bottom line is causes us harm because it causes us to live up to some way of being that just isn't. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think, I wonder, this seems sort of elemental, but, or elementary, excuse me, but why do you think people are afraid of their own grief?
0: You know, we are so afraid of our own grief. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is because we're afraid of pain.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, we're afraid of anger. We are afraid of rage. We are afraid, we aren't taught how to, Feel sort of again, I'm sort of speaking in the sort of, you know, universal sense, although Mm -hmm. I'm definitely speaking in US culture. I think other cultures have other practices that are much better at it than we are in the US. But I think we, many of us in our growing up families, and we, many of us in US culture, aren't really we're taught to suck it up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, get on with it, get over it. And so We're afraid of our grief because we don't know what's going to happen because we've never really held space for our pain and for our loss. And so I use the metaphor. I actually wrote a poem about it. I'll share with your listeners if you want, but um, I, I wrote a poem about this metaphor that I've been using for years and years about how we can learn to deal with our emotions. So right now we are scared of grief because we are scared of our emotions because we're scared that if we let them in especially the quote unquote hard ones. We're not scared of happy, you know, or (laughs) joy, but we're scared of, right, resentment and anger. And so I think right now our assumption is if we let those emotions in that we don't like or that we're uncomfortable with, they're going to unpack their bags and move in and become permanent house guests. Mm -hmm. And what I like to invite people to think about as we do this work of grief is that our emotions all of our emotions are just visitors over for a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. None of them are permanent house guests. Even the ones we want to stay and move in, even though we want joy and delight and amazement to unpack their bags and stay forever, <laughs> they don't. And neither does anger and despair and sorrow, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I think the sort of how we move from being scared of our grief to accompanying ourselves in our grief is to sort of reshift our thinking and think about our emotions as visitors over for a cup of coffee. And they are there to teach us something, to tell us something, and they won't stay. But the more that we keep them sort of on the front porch to keep this analogy going, right? Mm -hmm. They are looming large. Every time you go to open your front door (laughs) or peek back the curtains, (laughs) those emotions are standing in there. And now they are actually casting a shadow over us, keeping other visitors, like joy and delight and amazement from coming to visit. Mm -hmm. And so the invitation really is to, which is hard, I'm not trying to trivialize it. I remember absolutely in my early days after my husband died, and remember at the time I was already a trained social worker, I was a therapist, so I had some advantages. Mm -hmm. I remember saying out loud to myself, to nobody in particular in the room, if I start crying, I'm never gonna stop and I'm gonna go crazy. I mean, I definitely remember feeling like, if I let these emotions in, they're going like, to like an alien take over my brain and my body and I'm, I'm not going to go. So I understand that this isn't trivial, that this isn't simple, but I think it's the invitation is that all emotions are simply information. Mm-hmm. And if we can invite them and in, listen and learn, they will go. They absolutely will, will go. And hopefully we will have new information that will help us rewrite kind of the story of our lives. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think we can do to be less scared of grief and just more comfortable with experiencing our emotions is to remember not only are they information, but emotions are always tied to some story. While your emotions are always valid, the story isn't always true. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about, earlier our conversation was about how the shoulds, kind of we should all over ourselves, Yes, um, right? Is that often we have emotions And sometimes when we listen closely to the information our emotions are trying to share with us, we hear the stories that are associated with them. And sometimes if we can get enough distance because we are quiet and listening to our emotions long enough, we can hear how those stories actually aren't serving us or actually don't have truth to them. We start to hear that the pain we're feeling or the fear we're feeling Is because we're telling ourselves a story that is not actually true, and I don't mean the facts of the case, as it Mm -hmm, were, the mm -hmm. facts like somebody's dead. But we often feel pain, for instance, in loss of loss of relationship. That I will never love again. I will never be lovable. I never, you know, whatever the stories are behind our emotion. And I want to invite people to not to sort of interrogate our stories and see when our stories are actually harming us or helping us. And all of that just takes practice. We're Bad at it, we're messy at it, we're not good <laughs> at it. That's okay. That's not a problem. We just have to sort of practice at it and we have to be willing to let go of our um, expert obsession that we have <laughs> again, sort of all of us collectively, culturally, and individually that we should know how to do this. Right. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't know how to do this because we haven't done this before. We haven't done the work of grief before. And even if you grieved a different loss before, this is a new loss. And so I think we need to shed the sort of stories of expert, of holding ourselves to a sort of an expertise and just allow ourselves to be novices in this.
1: And that's also tough too to hear. I have to say, yeah. it took me, well, it took me by surprise too, even though it makes sense that just because you've grieved one loss, especially let's say it's a death loss, doesn't mean that you're inoculated for the next one.
0: Absolutely not. So I think a couple things that we need to remember for ourselves is that just like we're always rewriting the story of our lives and where we've been shapes the story of what we're creating. Mm-hmm. Certainly a previous grief or loss incident, and by the way, how we processed our grief or not, mm-hmm. whether we actually did the work of our grief or not, or are doing the work of our grief because it's ongoing. Yeah, will influence that sense of next loss, and also that next loss may be a loss that has a very different impact on your life.
1: Have you in your work encountered other cultures or, or societies or communities that do handle grief better?
0: Yeah. You know, that's so interesting that you bring that up because I've just been doing a lot of reflecting about being in my learning space right now. I'd like to call it my learning space. And that's one of the places that I'm exploring right now is I do know sort of anecdotally that other cultures, especially cultures that operate along the lines of sort of storying or ancestering. So if you think about more Buddhist cultures or even sort of the cultures in Australia, New Zealand that are more influenced by kind of story storytelling, but lots mm-hmm. of other places, I think, um, do this work better because they understand sort of that grief is not something to be feared or nor death that it's a part of our sort of evolution and part of our life cycle mm. but that is an area of study that I'm taking on for myself these days because I'm interested to learn specifically more about how they do that I do know again um narrative therapy which is kind of the narrative approach is how I think about the work that I do comes out of Australia comes out of that way of thinking and so I know other cultures are are doing that better. And we have a lot, we have a lot to learn Mm -hmm. in this country. And it has to do sometimes with the backgrounds of spirituality. It has to do with backgrounds of hardship. I mean, when you think about Ireland, actually, there's a lot of poets and writers out of Ireland and a lot of practices and rituals that are really about acknowledging and naming the cycle of, you know, life and death and loss and grieving and Um, I think we can learn certainly from lots of folks who are able to explore and express and hold dialogue, Mm -hmm. you know, about these, about the realities of our lived experiences in this space.
1: How do you feel so many years later when you think about losing your husband? Do you feel like your friend Joe understood that, Part of the loss of your husband had to do with not being able to hear him say he was ready to go, not being able to hear you. And that's part of why he spoke with you at the end of his life, the way he did, or was that just unconnected?
0: Uh, You know, that's like, I've never thought about that before. I guess my gut instinct is that it was more of a serendipitous gift Mm -hmm. to me, you know, in the end. I do think that it's certainly losing my husband in that way where we couldn't um, have a conversation in the end added for a long time and probably still adds to some of the pain that I feel in the not knowing kind of the, you know, some people might call it like the lack of closure, not being able to sort of say a formal goodbye, which by the way, so many people are experiencing right now in this time of COVID-19, for instance. Yeah, Um, And so my heart especially goes out to the people who are, are facing loss at this time. Um, so I think there was some, and certainly Joe knew about that experience because as I said, I relied on him and talked to him throughout the years intervening about the pain of losing Eric and and that particular aspect of not being able to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. I think for Joe, um, we kind of were his family, this group of friends that I said. And so I think there was just something about him seeing our faces and him seeing my face across from him that he, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of mumbling because that's really got my heart kind of beating fast and thinking about whether Joe knew I needed to hear that or not. Um, Hmm. I don't know. It's a really sweet idea.
1: Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure when you told the story, if I understood the importance to you and what it meant to you that he did that because you didn't have a chance to do that with your husband. And then there was a part of the story that I didn't know if I didn't understand or not. Um, But I hear, I heard the emotion in your voice when you talked about Joe, and I don't think those memories really go away. And in a way, it's kind of a blessing.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean... You know, I've talked about this with um somebody else about the experience of being by people's side when they die. And I'm not saying it's for everybody and not every death is a death that you necessarily want to be. Both of the deaths that I've been by the side of were peace, you know, were not, mm-hmm. you know, violent deaths. So I can't speak to that. But the memories of those of being there when they took their last breath were are profound, sometimes difficult to hold. And I've certainly had to do my own sort of therapeutic work around um some of those memories. But they are absolutely memories I cherish and to know that for me, the experience of being able to know that even though, for instance, my husband didn't know verbally that I was there, I really believe in his spirit that he felt me in bed with him and felt me holding him and mm-hmm. and so those memories, same with Joe's, you know being able to hold his hand and be there by his side, those memories are certainly important to me, and I attribute that they meant something to both of those people. Mm-hmm as they left the, these bodies, as they left this world.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you ever get
0: tired or drained
1: from this work?
0: That's a really good question. I'm definitely feeling it these days as we face the sort of collective grief that is boiling up and and becoming unveiled in this country um, as a result of what is happening right now and also just in my day-to-day work. So I don't know if I would use the word tired. I do have to practice very much that um, self-care mantra that I'm always sharing with other people. And I do need to lean on other people for support sometimes, that buddy breathe when necessary, Mm -hmm. um, part of my life motto. Mm -hmm. And so it can become heavy. It can become the weight of holding space and bearing witness to other people brings so much beauty and joy into my life. And it can be sometimes heavy to hold. So I definitely work quite tirelessly in my own life to create practices that allow me to replenish and reset and renourish my own um, capacities Mm -hmm. so that I'm not inadvertently harming somebody else when I show up to support them. So for me, that looks like exercise. For me, that looks like a pretty rigid daily meditation practice that I do. And for me, that Also involves seeking my own support, you know, my own professional support. Mm -hmm. I think as people who provide it, we are absolutely it's emboldened on us to also be the receivers of support. Mm -hmm. And I also take breaks sometimes, you know, and take pauses so that I can recharge. And as my mom, you know, reminds me, as as every airline's attendant has ever said to us, we have to put on our own oxygen mask before assisting others. Mm -hmm. And there are times when the air is really thin and we have to do that more often. And I certainly do feel like for us in this moment in time in our country, the air is really thin and we have to show up for other people, especially other people who haven't had access to oxygen masks all this time. And we have to show up for ourselves too.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you have any quick tips that you'd like listeners to take away with them for this time to keep themselves as whole as they can?
0: You know, I think, yeah, a couple of them would be find ways for you that work for you to find loving kindness and compassion for yourself. Because when we don't find it for ourselves first, I think we are less able to give it to other people. I think another one is, um, I think where there's a call for us to be Experts, experts at race, experts at public health issues, experts at speaking, writing, showing up for people, doing everything right. And then that causes us paralysis and pain. And we end up with a lot of shoulds. Mm-hmm. So I would say hold space for the fact that you are gonna stumble and mumble and fall, and things are gonna be ambiguous, and that's okay. And to focus on the things that you do know, to focus on the things that keep make you feel safe.
1: Mm-hmm
0: while also taking the time to learn what you need to learn, whether it's examining your own emotions and your own grief, whether it's learning about how to be safe and navigate the world in this public health crisis, or whether it's doing the work of becoming anti-racist or being an advocate. Mm -hmm. All of those things require us to balance both a sense of we are okay as we are, we are enough in this moment with and, I never say but, I say and, we are okay as we are in this moment and we are called to always be learning and educating ourselves and adapting and changing. And so I think the invitation is, that's a lot of work. So find some grace and space for yourself and others as you hold both of those things to be true. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Lisa, where can people find you and your work?
0: Yeah, well, you can definitely visit me on my website, which is just you know reimagininggrief.com. As I said, I do write daily invitations around grief and empathy. And I do that on all your favorite social media platforms Reimagining Grief on Instagram, Reimagining Grief on Facebook, on Twitter, LinkedIn, even if particularly, I try to write on LinkedIn about my work in grief and corporate spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find me by tuning into your favorite podcast. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say a swear word on it. <laughs> if not, I'll just I, say, I'll just say, I'm, my podcast is called Grief is a Sneaky Bee. And you can fill in the blank <laughs> for the rest of that. And that's available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. And that is a space where folks can listen in to really intimate, vulnerable conversations I have with people about, you know, on the grief journey that we're on. Thank you. Um, So yeah, checking out any of those places and at Thrive Global, I've been invited to be a contributing writer to Thrive Global. So you can see some of my writing there as well.
1: I'm excited to read those pieces that you mentioned. And if you want to, I can put some links up on the website that, yeah, yeah I'll put some links up on and then everything changed com for your episodes so that people can find those. I love your analogies and I love the way that you approach this work with story. I think it's really, well, for me, it's really different. And I
0: think it's, it could be a very good way in for yeah, people. Yeah, I think we can all relate to the idea that our lives are stories then make us feel like we have more access to adapt, you know, when it feels more kind of in our own wheelhouse. hmm Yeah.
1: Lisa, thank you very much for sharing your work and your time with me today. I really am so glad you were here. Oh,
0: I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. I love your curiosity and your learning and I hope our conversation today will spark... Uh, somebody else to think differently about their own grief or how to show up in support of somebody else in their grief.
1: Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit ATECpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.